Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This time, we'd like to invite our children forward. question for you. Do any of you know what pottery is? I see a few hands, yeah. Well, pottery is a name for anything that has been made out of clay. I brought a little clay to show you. Probably seen this. Some of you probably made pottery before. And a person who makes things out of clay is called a potter. Now, I love clay. And I started making pottery about a year ago. And so I'm still a beginner but I wanted to bring a few of the things that I've made to show you. (coughs) This is the first thing that I ever made. It's a little bowl. I took a ball of clay, just like this, and I shaped it and I formed it into my hands until I was happy with the shape that it made. Now, I made a few mistakes along the way, but I learned from my mistakes. 
Now this is the first thing that I ever made on a potter's wheel. We're going to hear about a potter's wheel in our scripture that's coming up. <coughs> now I took a ball of clay just like this, but instead of using just my hands, I put it on a potter's wheel. And the wheel makes the clay spin around and around and around really fast. And it's a lot harder to make something on the wheel than it is to just use your hands. And I made a lot of mistakes before I was able to make this. But I learned from my mistakes. Now, this is the first mug that I ever made. I took a ball of clay just like this, and I put it on the wheel, and it spun around and around and around really fast. And I used my hands to shape it and form it until it made this shape. But you see, it's got this handle right here. You can't make a handle on the wheel. I had to take a ball of clay, stretched it, and I pulled it until I was able to make a handle. Now you would think, a handle, that's not very hard to make. But I made so many mistakes before I was able to make this handle. But I learned from my mistakes, and I grew as a potter. Now the reason I brought these things to show you is because God shapes us just like the potter shapes the clay. God shapes us in so many different ways, through our parents, through our friends, through our teachers. God shapes us in Sunday school and in worship. And I know that some of you are first graders, and this is your first time in worship with us today. God has shaped you in Sunday school, and now God is going to shape you in worship. And we are so glad that you're with us today in worship because we need you. We need each and every one of you, whether you're first graders or kindergartners or older or younger. Because we learn and we grow in community with one another. And we're being shaped in worship. And we're going to make mistakes, all of us. You and me, our parents are going to make mistakes, our teachers, our friends, everyone in this room, we're going to make mistakes. But that's how we learn and grow and become better followers of Jesus. I couldn't have made any of these things if I didn't have a community of people who supported me and loved me and showed me how to be a better potter. And we can't grow and learn without a community of people to show us how to be better followers of Jesus. And that's what's so great about being in worship together. It's because we're all here with each other, with God. We're growing, we're learning, we're sharing, we're making mistakes, and we're being shaped together in community and in love. All right, let's bow our heads and pray together, okay? Dear God, thank you for community. Thank you for community. Thank you for mistakes. Thank you for mistakes. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for shaping us. Thank you for shaping us. And thank you for loving us. And thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all so much. You know, welcome to follow back in your teachers, all right? now a reading from Jeremiah. The 
word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come down. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, says Jeremiah, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Just like the clay in the potter's hands, so you, Israel, are in my hands. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But that nation concerning which I have spoken, if it turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring upon it. And at another moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, says, now therefore say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way and mend your ways in all your doings. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Straight, plumb, and square. Son, buildings are to be straight, plumb, and square, preached Reese. He was the master carpenter and I was the apprentice. And for the better part of two years, we were teamed together, college student and craftsman, as we built a university gymnasium and built a house and renovated a historic Moravian church. Reese would repeat his mantra, straight, plumb, and square several times each day to our croup. Was it, not his, it was his not-so-subtle way of teaching the basic principles of carpentry. And then with a twinkle in his eye, he'd add a punch to his Trinitarian formula. Straight, plumb, and square, gentlemen, but remember, nails are not structural. He was a good and imaginative teacher of an ancient craft, and I'm forever grateful for the knowledge he shared and the way that he taught. Some years later, working as a journeyman carpenter and leading a crew of framing carpenters, I needed every bit of knowledge that Reese imparted. Our work on this job began like every other residential framing job. We arrived on site after the masons had completed the basement walls and the ground was littered with piles of two by four and long floor joists and roof rafters and even the giant trusses that would form the roof of this house. To check the basement walls to ensure that they were straight, plumb, and square, we set up our transit, put our level rods on the corners of the house, pulled out our long tape measures, and began checking the as-built conditions. It didn't take long to discover a huge mistake. This house was 13 inches out of square. So instead of a rectangle, it was a trapezoid. Somehow in the process of laying out the basement walls, the mason made a one-foot, one-inch mistake. We're used to making small corrections. Wood is a pliable building product. But 13 inches would be a massive and costly mistake. 
Jesus tells us that a careful builder won't break ground or erect a basement or start framing the floor until she has double-checked the drawings, interviewed the contractors, put together a budget with enough margin for contingencies and mistakes and for permits. Then Jesus doubles down on the question, did you count the cost? By remarking that responsible generals won't go to battle without knowing they can win. Battles go badly and so do building projects. So did you count the cost, Jesus asked. So what did we do? We had a house to build. What did we do? We adjourned to the bar. <laughs> we took to the bar armored with, armed with our blueprints and some drafting paper and a bunch of measuring devices. Just remember that all residential building products are squares or rectangles, just about. Plywood comes in standard 4 by 8 sheets. Shingles are basically rectangles. Floor tiles have regular sides. So do bricks and concrete blocks. I've yet to see any building components shaped like a trapezoid. What happened was we redesigned the house inside the frame that was built that preserved the lovely concept the architect imagined. Our solution was ingeniously simple. We built a series of squares and rectangles and triangles inside a very irregular form. But there was a cost. Some of the desired features of this house, like the grand central staircase, were lost. And so was the huge fireplace that would have formed the center of the family room. The porches were totally redesigned and the kitchen was made to fit into a very odd triangular space. We minimized the impact, but it cost, I think, 35% more than the original cost and took weeks extra to build. In this week's biting text from Luke, a thick throng is following Jesus, and he's concerned about the way that they have not counted the cost of his plans. We don't know what the people were talking about as they followed him and the traveling crowd but they seem to be enchanted with Jesus. They've witnessed firsthand the results of his ministry. Sick and broken people are healed. Rigid authorities are challenged and injustices are righted. And there's an anticipation in the air that Jesus might be the long-anticipated Messiah. Maybe the journey is broken up by the odd silence that seizes us when we're in the presence of great celebrities or stars. Maybe the crowd is just abuzz with the possibilities. We don't know exactly what was going on, but when Jesus speaks, he tells them bluntly, whoever comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even life itself cannot be my disciple. They must be speechless by the challenge. The word translated as hate does not mean anger or hostility. Instead, its implication is rather that when conflicts arise as a result of following Jesus, as a result of being a disciple, and they will arise, discipleship must be chosen over relationships. The choice is a hard pill to swallow, but at least with Jesus there's truth in advertising. There's no bait and switch. The cross and the conflict, internal and external, 
are not negotiables on Jesus' journey. It's good to remember that our faith symbol isn't the smiley face, but it is the cross. These verses from Luke with their penetrating exaggeration about hating members of our own family normally receive top billing. But I'm struck today by the power of Jesus' words regarding building a tower. The construction language is fascinating as our continuous work of building a faithful community of Presbyterians continues. We've been at this for 190 years. And we're still in the process of getting it right. For discipleship entails constant building. Community formation means mutual admonition, accountability, and encouragement. It raises the question, do we have the labor, the capital, do we have the agility and resilience and knowledge to build this new and old community with the energetic guidance of God's Spirit? In our present American context, it seems, too, there's some demolition work required. If the building is to be constructed on a firm foundation, Luke suggests that discipleship is inseparable from renunciation, and that renunciation is necessary if the gospel of Jesus is to be the foundation on which a meaningful life is built. Jesus says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And if those weren't enough, there's the real zinger, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, cannot be my disciple. According to Luke, our current modes of discipleship involve working out what we can keep and what we can give away, what we love and what we hate, what we embrace and what we renounce. And on Being podcast with Krista Tippett, recently featured Amakai Lau Levi, a rabbi and spiritual leader in New York, who told a Talmudic parable. A large ship is sailing across the ocean, and there are many levels, and there are many cabins, and there are many passengers. And one of the people in the cabins on the lowest of floors decides to dig a hole in the floor. And sure enough, the ship begins to sink. And the other passengers discover what's going on, and they see this guy with a hole in the floor of his cabin, and they begin shouting at him, what are you doing? And he says, well, it's my cabin, and I paid for it. And down goes the ship. The parable is surely an overstatement, but it points to the same painful truth that Jesus names in our reading from Luke. When it comes to the life of faith, we want to have it both ways, truly. But we can't. We want to embrace a Christianity that doesn't involve costly choices. We want to float along like we always have. We want to experience Jesus as our healer, our friend, and our savior, but not so much the radical alternative prophet who barges into our private cabins and asks the bold, intolerable question, what are you doing? What are you doing? But we have to give Jesus credit for he speaks the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells it like it is. And he says, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to abandon the fantasy that it's my cabin. 
I paid for it. In the community of faith, there is no my cabin. We're on great God, great God's great ship now, and everything we do, every choice that we make, every tribalism we cherish, every idol that we worship, every possession we hold on to affects the entire vessel. There's no us or them on the ship of Christian discipleship. There's only a we, a holy God-ordained we, an all-encompassing, massive and momentous and fragile we, more than we could possibly imagine. If I'm a disciple, I'm responsible for that we, whether I want to or not. Jesus' claim on my life, in other words, is radical and it's absolute. And it relativizes all other claims. To say this teaching is hard is an understatement. Jesus knows it's hard and he advises followers to stop and to count the costs before they sign up to be a follower. Remember, a careful builder, he says, never breaks ground without taking a good hard look at her budget or her contract or the skills of the workers. And anything can go wrong and often does, and a wise general doesn't declare war until he's sure the troops are prepared and battle ready. The life of faith is no different. Discipleship is no weekend hobby or vacation destination. It's, according to Jesus, a full soul, full body, full mind endeavor that requires renunciation and surrender and a reordering of our identities, our priorities, our appetites. It seems to require hating what's too narrow, too exclusive, too insular. Instead, learning to love what is just and broad and inclusive and boundless. I think we have to understand this story in the context of the imperial powers of its day when Israel ruled Rome, Rome ruled Israel with an iron fist and demanded an ultimate allegiance. The same nationalistic powers are at risk of demanding the same of us today. Does following Jesus mean hating the ceaseless war on terrorism? Or does it mean hating the plutocratic pay-to-play reality of our politics? Our nation's eternal failure to remember our history or our inability to confront the structural racism that pervades our society. Whatever path this extraordinary text points us in, it certainly directs us away from the status quo. In her wonderful memoir, Still, Lauren Winter tells the story of her childhood friend, Julian, who is about to go, uh, conf- undergo confirmation in her church. Rachel Held Evans retells the same story in Searching for Sunday, the book that was part of our summer book reads. When Julian was about 12 years old and was participating in the confirmation class in her church, and she'd arrived at the day in which she was to stand in front of the congregation and to affirm questions of belief about Jesus and God and about being a part of the life of the church. She told her father, who was the pastor of that church, that while she wasn't sure she believed everything she was supposed to believe, at least not enough to stand up and make public promises before God. But her father told her this, that What you promise when you're confirmed is not that you will believe this forever. 
What you promise when you are confirmed is that this is the story you will wrestle with forever. And so it is for us today with this passage from Luke's gospel. This is a story that we will wrestle with for every day of our life. The impertinent questions of Jesus set us back on our heels and make us to take stock of our reality. And so it is that this is our story to wrestle with each and every day as a church and as a people, as we are committed again and again to being a community of welcome, to fostering important moral and theological conversations, to engaging God through worship and the arts and responding to the needs of our neighborhoods and the world, and in sharing in word and deed the good news of Jesus Christ. We always have to stop and ask, have we counted the cost? And are we sure of the path that lies in front of us? And we also have to hold in our minds this notion that this God accompanies us on this journey each and every step. For this is a God of grace who has loved us from the moment we were born and baptized and who stands with us all the days of our lives. Amen. I believe in God, our Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.